Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's uh, welcome our other two campuses, our, the Body of Christ over in Carp and Ventura. And let's all turn in our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, starting a new segment of the letter to the Ephesians by Paul. As we've uh, been preparing for this, I, I warned you that in the first three chapters, Paul was giving the, the grand good news, the indicatives of the gospel concerning who God was manifest in the person of his, his dear son, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished. And now he's going to flip a corner to speak about how the church should conduct themselves in relation to what we believe is true, starting in uh, chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6. And we're just going to bite off the first three verses of chapter 4. And when you get there, let's, uh, let's begin reading that together. Starting in verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, even as I read through this short passage of, of three verses, I already see at least four things that I'm very bad at. But God, we believe in the power of the gospel, that in the gospel is power not just to convert us, but to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we here in this building and in the campuses representing your local church and your local body, we believe in the power of the gospel, and we desire that we would not be left like we were when you found us. And our hope, Lord, is not for just more religiosity, it's not for uh, mor uh, morality, it's not for simple moralistic, therapeutic deism, it is for transformation, not just to be better people, but to be more like the Jesus that we have so fallen in love with. And you are worthy of our love. You are worthy of our adoration and our affection. And as we sang to you in unison, and as we have proclaimed so many times before, we will follow you. We pray that you would give us all that we need to follow, and that you would open our eyes to see the effects of the gospel in a community of believers that desires Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The title of the, the message this morning is called A Culture of Unity, and the reason it's called that, based on what Paul says in these first three verses, is I would hope that we would be able to see in contrast to the culture that we now live in and that we are more, I, I would say, used to than probably anything else. I don't have to explain to you too much that the culture that we are most familiar with in our job situations, at school, even in family, so on and so forth, is that of a competitive culture. It's, if you really want to call it what it is, it's a cutthroat culture 
where we are vying for certain positions. We're vying for approval and recognition. And we have to do it in such a way that we often do it uh, at the sacrifice of either our own integrity or the well-being of other people. This competitive cutthroat culture in which we live causes us to sometimes see that the only way to survive is by a a sense of self-preservation or to gain approval. We have to take it from someone else. Or to gain a reward, we have to sacrifice our integrity or to look out for ourselves because nobody else will. There's no one who will go to bat for me other than myself, so I may as well do it. And Christ, in instituting the church, Himself being the head, did something that was a a paradigm shift in the world as He knew it and still is thousands of years later, in which He created for Himself a covenant community, which He called the church, that would live in the world, yet be strangely disconnected from some of those things. In fact, it doesn't just live in it trying to get along or trying to make it by or trying to survive, but the church exists in that competitive cutthroat culture, attempting and aiming by the Spirit of God to confront all of those destructive aspects of the culture that surround us. We are called to be the light of the world, city set on a hill, not meant to simply survive to show them a better way and a better story and a better hero to follow. So it would make sense that in order for those things to actually have their way, the church should look dramatically different from the rest of the world. I don't mean in the clothes that we wear or the styles that we prefer or the music that we listen to or arts or crafts or sciences or job descriptions but something deep-seated in our disposition, in our affections that make their way into our behavior. There should be something dramatically different about the church. They should be able to look at us and say, I don't know what it is and I don't know what your deal is, but you are different in some sense. Paul says this in the first three verses and he will for the next three chapters. I want to look at these three verses under three simple headings that emerge from the verses that we see in front of us concerning God's plan revealed in the gospel. One, I want to look at the exhortation Paul gives us. Two, I want to look at the expressions in which he uh, communicates to us. And lastly, I want to look at, the, uh, look at the effects of the gospel in the life of a community, a community that understands and obeys. The exhortation simply comes from that first word that Paul says and. He says, therefore, I, the, the, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. I, Paul, therefore, urge you to do such and such. As my, I've shared with you before, as my mom has often said in the, into my ears, I've been reading the scriptures, and as you often should do the same, we should look at things like this as Paul is in the habit of using words like this, therefore, constantly, halfway through an epistle, we should be asking ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? And the, 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 simplest, the simplest, simple fact, <laughs> that was about as unsimple as I could possibly get. <laughs> so what Paul is saying is the therefore is therefore the reason that uh, what he's been going through chapters 1 and 2 and 3, that if you believe what he has been saying up until this point, your life will look like chapters 4 through 6. If you believe 
this unfolding drama and story of redemption has been unpacked through chapters 1 and 3, that God, knowing that we were sinners, sent a hero to save us from our own sins, and in doing so, was seeking to put the entire world together when it was broken for His own glory. If you believe that, then our lives should look, or start to begin to look, like chapters 4 through 6. And he starts, he starts into this exhortation by saying, I want you now to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Not speaking of a calling like we would sometimes view calling, like that dream job that God has given us, or our vocation, or that which we do from 9 to 5. He's speaking about the calling he's been unpacking through chapters 1 through 2 and 3. Speaking about our election, not our vocation. Speaking about our salvation, about the power of the gospel. He's saying, if you have been converted, your life will act like it. He tells us specifically to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel in our lives. He's speaking literally about uh, uh, this word that they would often use for walking in relation to something meant to bring, to balance the scales, to bring it into equilibrium, to adjust your life accordingly to something that you believe. To walk speaks of conduct. It speaks of occupation. Not that which you are occupied in for a living, but that which your mind, your will, your disposition is occupied and your affections are occupied by. He is saying, I want you and you should adjust the occupation of your mind and your heart to fit the calling that you claim to believe. And it should be so vivid that the outsider who knows nothing of the Bible should look in at the church community and be able to tell there's something different about you because you have been affected by something. Moves into the second point, the expressions. And he gives us some practicalities. He's saying, the way that that looks, I'm just going to spell it out for you. This is the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to give you a, a few things to see how dramatically different the church should look from everybody else. Throws out four. One, humility. The church should be occupied with a sense of humility with each other. Now that word would have surprised every Gentile reader when Christians first read that virtue. In the first century, humility was the last thing that you would attach to your resume. It was not a thing that you would typically chase after. In fact, Paul's contemporary uh, Epictetus listed uh, humility as a word that was first among qualities not to be commended. That was not a strength to have. That was not something to strive after. That was something that was uh, the taste of weak people. Paul lists it first among those things which the church should be known by. We can describe humility as a modest view of self. As I should say, a modest view of self in relation to other people. Because humility isn't just self-deprecation, right? We sometimes think of humility as thinking as lowly of ourselves as possible. Self-deprecation, depression, beating myself up, refusing uh, the gratitude of others, refusing blessing, tearing myself up, having a a low self-esteem. That's not humility. That's just self-deprecation, which strangely is another form of pride. Because what is pride? It's based on a deep-seated desire for approval. And so if you are a narcissist, you will build yourself up so that people can notice you. But if you want people to notice you, you can also tear yourself down to fish for sympathy. 
they're both subtle forms of the same problem. Humility is not just self-deprecation. It's not just thinking uh, lowly of yourself. Timothy Geller in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, puts it this way. The essence of real humility, gospel humility, is not thinking more of myself, and it's not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. See that subtle difference? It's not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Because at the heart of self-loathing is a desire to, for, for people to approve you in your lowliness. Uh, at, the, at the heart of pride is a desire for other people to notice how great you are. But the gospel frees the person from their uh, insatiable need to be approved. Why? Because you have been approved by God in Jesus Christ when you had nothing that was worthwhile. And so the gospel frees you from that need to, to be approved. And all of a sudden, when you grip a hold of the gospel of grace, you start to notice, I no longer need to be at the center of attention anymore. I don't need the universe to revolve around me anymore. I don't need God to revolve around me anymore, like he was to begin with. And I don't need the church to revolve around me anymore. Because the gospel has created in the Christian a balanced view of yourself in relation to God's massive plan. And you fit in quite nicely. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each other. Then he moves into the next one. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is a weird one. When I'm going down a list of virtues, most of them I'm pretty attracted to. Like, who doesn't want more love? All we need is love. Bob Marley. When you're going down the list of, of attributes and the fruit of the Spirit, who doesn't want more joy in their life? I want more joy. I want more peace. I want more love. When I get to gentleness, I cringe a little bit. Yeah. There's two types of persons in this room that run the risk of misinterpreting what gentleness is. There's the extroverts. You're the type of person that is very forward. You speak your mind. You share your heart. Uh, chances are if someone put you in a group with a project to nail that you would probably be the one who is driving that group and accomplishing what needs to be done. And those are strengths that are inherent in you. Those are different qualities that are involved in your personality that are good things. You are a driven person. You speak your mind. You're forward. You're bold. You're probably a, a, a more bent on evangelism because you have this courage. You're faithful. You uh, are not afraid of confrontation when, when uh, a situation calls for it. And so, knowing that those things are strengths, you may see this word as gentleness as being a sign of weakness. Why would I want that? Why would I want to curb all of the things that are so good about me? <laughs> ah, but you see, gentleness, as God knows it, is not a sign of weakness. It is actually a form of power. It is power with a seatbelt on. Gentleness is not weakness. It is showing power through the filter of self-control rather than self-exertion. That's why Jesus would say to his, his great apostles, after he gave them the keys to the kingdom, he would say, do not lord your authority over those who have been entrusted to you, but rather show yourselves as an example to follow. 
power through self-control. There's another type of person in the room that runs a risk of misinterpreting what gentleness is. It's the introvert. It's the person who has a different set of strengths from the extrovert. You are uh, not loud. You are not necessarily forward. You are not necessarily given to confrontation because you are often uh, thinking about others' feelings as more important than your own. You think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. In fact, if you were to search gentleness in the dictionary, which isn't always what the Bible defines some of these words, but if you were to uh, look it up in the dictionary, the first thing that would come up is amiable, willing to accept the wishes and decisions or suggestions of others. And some of you are uh, that type of personality. You are willing to put your desires on the shelf for somebody else. And that's your strength. And so you could look at a word like gentleness in the Bible and see Paul, walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness. Oh, awesome! I, I do that naturally. I am a naturally gentle person. But you run the risk of mixing what it means to be temperamentally gentle and what Paul describes, which is not a temperament or a personality characteristic, but a supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. And here's the difference between the two. Someone who is temperamentally gentle might be more prone to not confront other people in order to think, uh, to to submit to other people rather than their own desires, but look at how that can sometimes manifest itself. On the opposite, on the awful end of the spectrum, it could cause a person who is bent towards this type of, of, of passivity to say, I am so desirous of other people's approval that I am afraid of confronting them. This type of gentleness, which is not a fruit of the Spirit, is more prone to passivity. There are some times where you just simply don't want to speak up about the truth, even though people are getting hurt because of it. There are some times maybe where you are simply shy, not necessarily gentle. There are some times where you're simply just afraid of saying what needs to be said because you are desiring to be approved by others. And when that happens, it's not gentleness, it's passivity. And in its worst forms, it's just cowardice. Gentleness allows the Christian to have a backbone without steamrolling people. And so both types of people need the spiritual gift of gentleness. It is showing power through self-control. We could call gentleness. If humility is to have a modest view of self in relation to others, uh, gentleness is to have a generous view of other people. Smaller view of self, bigger view of others. Paul goes on. I want you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility, gentleness, with patience. Patience is the ability to suffer for a long time for the benefit of other people. We could put it in, we can couch it in different terms. It's the ability to suppress your annoyance when you get disappointed. How many of you have sons, daughters, cousins, brothers, uncles, parents, professors, coworkers, employees, employers? How many of them disappoint you on a regular basis? 
How many of you disappoint one another? You know what patience is? The supernatural ability is given by the Holy Spirit to put up with that person out of what? To accept one another in love, Paul says. Why in the world would you be able to accept people who disappoint and let you down and do a variety of other things that you hate? Because if you are walking in humility and gentleness and patience, you have a balanced view of yourself in relation to God which allows you to use your gifts to bless others while suppressing your annoyance when things don't go your way. Think about the type of person that nails all three of these things. That type of person cannot be destroyed by the failings of others, and yet they will never allow others to be destroyed by their own failings. Could you imagine if we just had ten people like that? Oh, the healing that would take place. The identities that would be founded on the work and person of Jesus Christ, the reconciliation, the friendships, the witness to the world. Of course, that's the problem. How many of you have read the Bible, walked out the door, looked at a list of virtues and said, I'm going to do these all today? (laughs) Just go try it. Just be more humble. Be humble. How would you even know that you're humble enough to say that you're humble? By the time you have thought that you have reached a a level of humility, you've already disqualified yourself by admitting that you are that which you are not supposed to admit that you are. (laughs) The problem with people is that even though we are called to be all of those things, we are commanded, urged to be humble, gentle, and patient, and accepting of others in love because of our fallen nature. When we attempt these things, we can hardly do them without injecting into them our own fallen versions of all of that. When I try to be humble, there are times where I am secretly, even though I won't admit it, hoping that somebody will build me up because I've lowered myself so low. When some of us are gentle, it is not out of a desire to bless other people, It is out of fear of what other people think about us. There are times, yes, when I am patient with other people, but the next day I suffer from the resentment that sets in because I can't handle it. These qualities, these expressions are difficult because they're impossible. These are things that cannot be apprehended. You can't just wake up and go to Costco and ask for a a five-gallon jug of humility These things cannot be apprehended or grabbed or grasped. They must be divinely given from Jesus Christ. And that is why in verse 3, Paul says that we are to walk according to the unit. We are called to walk according to the calling we have received in verse 1. It is something that we have already been given. It is a salvation that has already been uh, made its way deep into our heart. And Paul wants us, as he says in verse 3, to diligently keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You hearing what he's saying? He's saying, I don't need you to create unity. I don't need you to create peace because the problem is with humanity, you can't do it. He's speaking about a unity and a peace that has already been established. The problem that we face is more than just, I am not as humble as I would like to be. Our problem is, I could never hope to be humble this side of heaven. And I could never get to heaven to begin with because I am not humble. 
And the good news of the gospel is that humans did not reach God because they were so humble. We did not reach God because we were so patient and so gentle and so loving. God condescended by becoming humble when we were not. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, who was God in the flesh, did not regard equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but he did what? He humbled himself. He stepped down to our level and he did all the things that we could not do that he commanded of us. And he became for us a slave and a bondservant. And he humbled himself even to the point of death, to death on a cross. No wonder, as Paul is describing in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 of peace, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you are far away, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus brings our peace? No. Verse 14, Jesus is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. What we could not do for ourselves, Christ brings to us in spades. No wonder. And this is God's eternal plan. This is how he describes in chapter 1 verse 10 how he, God, would choose to bring everything under subjection to the Messiah through the reconciliation of the Son of God. And in doing so, the church is God's trophy. It's his masterpiece. Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, this, all of this, this gospel, this reconciliation, is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. The church is God's masterpiece of reconciliation. Say, so, yeah, well, the church is anything but humble. I've been to church. I've been to your church. church is anything but gentle. The church is far from perfect. That's true. But it will be. Christ will make his bride perfect. And we right now are in the process of doing that by the power of the gospel. Not called to make it, but called, as he says in verse 3, to keep it and to preserve it as it has been given. With all the power that the gospel entails. Continuing to be transformed by the gospel in our lives. My question to you is, do you believe it? Do you believe in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3? If you do, Paul gives us, moves on to the third point, the effects of the gospel in Christian community. If you believe all of this, this is what our lives should look like. First of all, if you believe the gospel, it should change your view of yourself in the church. The Bible, from cover to cover, is a combination of law and gospel. Whatever you read in the, go- uh, in the Bible will either be law or it will be gospel. And here's the, here's the effect of reading the Bible. When you read the law, when you read, you are to be humble, you are to be gentle, you are to be patient, you are to be loving. When you hear commands, when you hear the law of God, it immediately humbles you because you cannot do what God requires of you. Be holy as I am holy. And it condemns you as a failure because we are not holy. But when you read the gospel, the gospel takes a humbled person, pardons them, and then enables them to do what they could not do. The gospel changes your view of yourself. You roll into a community like this with a sober view of who you are in relation to a bigger story. 
But it just doesn't just change your view of yourself. It changes your view of others within the church. The local church is a covenant community. It's a family. And you don't get to choose the families that you were born into in this life. Those that you were born into by blood. Your blood-related families. You don't get to call your future mom on the phone and say, oh, can I interview you? And can I see how good you are at raising children and uh, how, what kind of food I'm going to eat and how many sweets you're going to give me and where I'm going to go to college. I'm hoping to go to an Ivy League school. You don't get to do any of that stuff. You don't exist yet. You have to be born into a family or adopted. What's strange about our culture not only Paul's in the church to Ephesus, but ours 2,000 years later, is that we live in a culture that, in which it is normative, even as Christians, to look at churches just like anything else that we choose to consume in this life. Church has become for us a cafeteria buffet where we roll in at a moment's notice to pick and choose whatever we want, whatever fits our whim, and the moment that we are disappointed, we will move on to the next thing. We don't treat church all the time, like a family. We treat it like a cafeteria. You don't have to go too far. You can talk to a number of pastors in local churches, in Ventura and Carpinteria and Santa Barbara to find reasons that people will leave the church. And they, some of them, are very silly. And reality has not been immune to the consumerism of our own culture. I don't like the style of preaching at this church. So-and-so preached a sermon on tithing. I don't really like uh, how the word deals with money uh, going somewhere else. My feelings got hurt. It's growing too big. I can't find the right amount of fellowship. I hate multi-site. I want a live preacher. I want this. I want that. All reasons that people get derailed. And while people in our communities, in the three cities in which we live, are jumping head over heels to get into the jaws of hell because they know not better, sometimes we occupy ourselves with some of the most trifling, inconsequential things in the world. I'm not saying some of these are not important. I'm saying we are occupied with them. If the truth of the matter would be told, Paul would be able to say, you are walking, you are occupied, you are uh, aligned with the culture of your day. Now there are, I don't want to just throw a, a cold blanket on every single situation. There actually are good reasons to leave a church. And there's a right way to do it. I am saying all of this that we as a church might be able to peer deeply into our heart to see if there is maybe a chance that we have let culture leak in to the family of God by the way that we treat one another. When my daughter Abby grows up to be 18 and she says, you know what, Dad, you smell and nobody cuffs their jeans anymore and you have greasy hair and I don't want to live in your house anymore, I want to live with my uncle, I'll be bummed but at least talk to me about it. 
at least go in peace. At least let there be a reconciled personal relationship with us. In other words, don't jack up a family so that you can go be with an extended family. In other words, there's something better than just our personal desires and longing. It's the family of God that God has designed from the beginning of time in which his spirit might dwell. And it's not just reality that gets plagued with this stuff. It's churches in general because we can sometimes be very consumeristic. And everything in this life is a commodity or a consumable that we can just pick and choose to meet our whims. But the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be different. not to be treated like a consumable product. Now, if God is calling you, Christian, to be in a local church, and he is, according to Hebrews, you should do it prayerfully, you should do it thoughtfully, and you should do it in community, knowing that when God calls you to be a part of a church, you're in. It doesn't have to be reality. It can be a number of different local churches that preach the gospel and love Christ and are on mission that fill our coastland, that were here long before we were. But it has to be a church. And there are many good ones in the area. And when God calls you to a specific local church and you know that he is calling you to commit, you better stick with it until he tells you to do otherwise. And for those of you that call reality your home, meaning you're not visiting, you're not just checking it out, you're not trying to, in the process of finding out where you're called, you are called here. To you, my brothers and sisters, I implore you to take our calling as a church very, very seriously. Meaning, are you in or are you out? Because if you're in, if you have seen the expansion of the kingdom of God and the mission that God is in and the mission that God calls us to be on the coastland where people are diving into hell in their sin. And you have said, I am in this for the long haul. You can't be out when the air conditioning gets too cold. You can't be out when Brit is out of town. You can't be out when you get bored from the sermon style. You can't be out when someone hurts your feelings. You can't be out when there's a certain program that isn't offered. You can't be out when you don't have something that you wish you had. Your commitment to the body of Christ has to be founded not on the body of Christ, but on the head of the body, Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faltering faith. And in that lies our hope, because I will fail you more than I am comfortable with admitting. You will fail me and we will fail each other, but Christ will never fail you, though we fail him constantly. And the knowledge of that gospel will transform our relationships with one another. It won't make us perfect, but it will transform even the biggest disputes if we let it. I'm asking that you would seriously consider the community that God would call you to be in. And once he does... You put the pedal to the metal and you say, I'm in this for the long haul until Christ calls me home or to a different place. The gospel has the ability to transform even the biggest disputes. Speaking of big disputes, 
I want to introduce you to no small people by the name of John Wesley and his good friend George Whitfield. How the gospel was able to shift a tift between two titans of the faith. John Wesley and George Whitfield, growing up in the 1700s, grew up as friends before they were Christians. They actually started what they called a holy club together. I believe it was at Oxford. They were not Christians. They started a holy club. Studying the scholars and reading the Bible until, as in the reading of the Bible, the Holy Spirit shined a light into each of their hearts and they had faith in Christ. And as they began to obey Christ and be on mission together, something began to sweep the nation in Great Britain and in America where George Whitfield would later be. We would later call this the Great Awakening. And as they grew in influence and as they grew in fruit and as they grew in stature and in wisdom and in a knowledge of God, they began to separate ways because of a petty difference between the two of them. See, John Wesley was in the field of faith that believed that God works in a person, uh, or excuse me, that faith comes before a God works in a person's heart. And George Whitfield believed the opposite, that salvation comes before faith does. And the two begin to split over those differences. And as they begin to split, their ministries begin to crack. As they begin to split in their differences, the people that they minister to and were in community with begin to uh, split from one another. Factions rose out of that. Divisions, broken hearts, trouble, drama. And in the midst of these differences, Whitfield decided to seek reconciliation and to battle for his brother, John Wesley. He exuded humility seeking reconciliation, humbling himself, yet without compromising his beliefs. He exuded gentleness as well. In that day, it was common to think that if someone disagreed with you on a, a piece of theology, that there, it was uh, adequate to doubt their salvation. And one person walked up to Whitfield, one of his followers, and said, uh, thought, asked Whitfield if Whitfield thought that his friend Wesley would be in heaven, to which Whitfield replied, no. He will be so if he would see Whitfield in heaven, to which he replied, no, he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get a sight of good Wesley. After what, uh, George Whitfield died, Wesley, in a broken heart, would attend his funeral and give a sermon, building him up in honor, saying, should we not mention that he had a heart susceptible of the most generous and the most tender friendships, I have frequently thought that this of all other things was the distinguishing part of his character. How few have we known of so kind a temper, of such large and flowing affections? Was it not principally by this that the hearts of others were so strangely drawn and knit to him? Can anything but love beget love? And then he would sing, servant of God, well done. That glorious warfare's past, the battle's fought, the race is won, and thou art crowned at last. Now, these two men were far from humble at heart. They had huge egos. They were given to sensationalism. They had incredible works and ministries under them, and they were very stubborn. What in the world would cause these two to lay aside such monumental differences if it did not come from inside themselves? They were occupied with Jesus. They were occupied with a greater hero. 
Did you know that George Whitfield taught John Wesley how to do open-air preaching to tens of thousands of people? Did you know that it was Whitfield, not Wesley, who was instrumental in the spread of the Great Awakening across the eastern seaboard? Did you know that George Whitfield was the one who was responsible for the launch of Methodism in that day? He started the first Methodist society 18 months before Wesley did. Well, why does Wikipedia say that the founder of Methodism is John Wesley? I'll tell you. Because in their tift, in their disagreement, George Whitfield sought to step back and say, it is not worth our relationship for us to fight over the position of this post. And without bragging about it and without speaking about it, he seceded his position and gave it over to Wesley. And when his followers were abhorred with this, saying, why in the world did you do that, Whitfield? Why would you give over all of these things, considering how gifted you are and how much you have done? Whitfield replied, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. But what is Calvin? What is Luther? Let us look above names and above parties. Let Jesus be our all in all so that he is preached. I don't care who is uppermost. I know my place and that's to be the servant of all. Whitfield was occupied with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. And his occupation with Christ would eventually change Wesley's occupation as well. Reality, what are you occupied with in these last days? What is it that changes your heart and grips your affection and changes your disposition? What is that thing which causes you to make the decisions that you make? Your occupations will reveal how deeply you understand the gospel of your salvation. And it's easy for us to get subjective about this. Oh, I think I get the gospel really well. But community is the barometer of a life lived worthily. You will find out how much you believe the gospel based on your interactions with one another. I want to leave you with a short description of what the gospel is, and I can't put it any better than John Wesley's younger brother, Charles, who on the night of his conversion penned a hymn of which these two verses I want to leave you with. He said this about Jesus. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth. And followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray. God, as we sing our songs together this morning, we understand that there is 
no list in Scripture of imperatives and commands that we can simply do out of our own goodwill and good intentions. And so, God, we first, before doing, we ask that you would help us to simply be. Those who have been identified with Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. That as we sing songs about who you are and what you have done, you would remind us not of how humble we are and how patient we are and how gentle we are and how loving we are, but how much we have failed and how much you have accomplished on our behalf. That Christ, you are humble. You are gracious. You are gentle and you are loving. You've done those things in your tremendous love for us while we were still sinners. And I pray that as we grip the sense of that gospel that you would cause us to live a life worthy of our calling. That we would walk in love with one another. That we would forgive each other our debts and our sins and our transgressions. That in our hurt and in our pain and in our anger we would not sin against one another. That the world might be able to look in at us and say, I have never seen that before in my life and I desperately want it. Let the gospel maintain its power in our communities and in our lives and in our families. In Jesus' name, amen.